can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. If you're using the black Bibles uh, that are provided for you, they're scattered uh, throughout the sanctuary under the seats in front of you, uh, that's going to be on page 855, Acts chapter 1. We start off, start a brand new series to kick off the new year. I was 12 years old at the time when early one morning I was awakened to the sound of rattling. And I opened my eyes and I saw the bed was shaking violently. And immediately, adrenaline shot through me and my mom, and we leapt out of bed, somewhat still confused, but, but with a general awareness that there was an earthquake. And, and it, was, it was kind of a comedy of errors as we were stumbling around the room, and we were trying to throw on some clothes over our PJs so we could go outside, which, by the way, is not necessarily the best thing to do in an earthquake, I found out later. And in all of the confusion, uh, I found myself, by the time the earthquake was over, partly dressed in my mom's clothes, and, and, and she was stuck with mine. And it was kind of an amusing moment there after the fact. We had just moved to Anchorage, Alaska, which was built on a fault line, not the best place to build buildings. But uh, since then, I've been in many earthquakes, but it's always still a little disconcerting when one happens. Out of all the natural disasters that, that go on in the world, earthquakes can be among the most terrifying You can predict a tornado, you can track a hurricane, but you can't predict an earthquake. You can't evacuate before it comes. In 1964, uh, Anchorage was leveled by an earthquake, and, and even as a person like me who was living there in the 80s and in the 90s, people there were still talking about that 64 earthquake. It was forever burned on their psyche as that one moment that completely shook up their lives and changed everything. That's what massive earthquakes do. Well, Book of Acts records the aftermath of another kind of seismic event that shook the entire world. Not an earthquake, but a resurrection. Jesus Christ, a rabbi from the despised hick country town called Nazareth, had gained a band of followers and he was teaching and he was preaching about the kingdom of God, but he was murdered by his enemies. He was nailed to a cross. His cold, dead body was placed in a tomb sealed by an enormous stone, a stone that three days later was somehow rolled away. And when his followers peered into that tomb, Jesus was not there. He was the first man in the world to vacate the grave under his own power. Jesus is alive, and as a result, everything has changed. That's why the sermon series is called, He Lives Aftershocks of the Resurrection. Uh, The resurrection of Christ was like a, a massive earthquake shaking the very structure of history and the very fabric of reality itself. Everything that people thought was possible suddenly changed. Everything that people perceived about reality was shaken and sometimes even torn down. But unlike a physical earthquake, the reality-shaking event of the resurrection is good news for his people. 
And the aftershocks, the after effects of that great event continue to be felt 2,000 years later and no one can escape the impact and the implications of that tombstone being rolled away. When you view your life through the lens of the resurrection, it transforms how you see everything. How you see your life, your purpose, your problems, your obstacles, your enemies, your suffering, your job, your school, your finances, your family, even reality itself. Nothing is untouched by the aftershocks. Everything is affected. And that's why I'm so excited to be journeying through the book of Acts with you because if the, if the Spirit works through this book like I'm praying for Him to work, there will be lives in this room that will be shaken and, 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 and changed and transformed in, in the weeks and the, in the months ahead. So let's begin this incredible journey right now. Please stand with me out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great God. We stand here at Harbin's Church before we read the sermon text. This is a way of reminding us that what we're reading is not just the mere opinion of men. This is not just any old words. This is the words, these are the words of the living God and carries the same authority as if Jesus Christ was standing right here on this platform speaking words to you right now. Acts chapter 1, I'm going to start at verse 1 and read on down through verse 5. God's Word says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's pray. Father, would you bless the the reading and the preaching and the hearing of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. book of Acts was written probably in the early 60s AD by Luke, who was a Gentile believer, uh, a medical doctor, a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He probably served as Paul's personal physician. Uh, In Colossians chapter 4, Paul calls Luke the beloved physician. In 2 Timothy, where Paul was experiencing his final imprisonment before his execution, he was on death row, he writes that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Luke alone is with me. Luke alone is with me. Uh, He was a, a true and loyal friend to Paul. He was there by his side, evidently, to the very end. And unlike Demas, Luke persevered in his faith. He stayed by Paul's side precisely because he was not in love with this present world, which means he was in love with Jesus. Luke wrote an entire volume about Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection, and what we call the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And the book of Acts is the sequel. It's the second part of a two-volume set. Really, these books go together. They're, They're hand in hand. And Luke's main motivation for writing these accounts can actually be found in the beginning of the book of Luke. 
In Luke chapter 1, he begins by saying, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke's immediate audience is a particular person named Theophilus, uh, who was most likely also a Gentile. He actually could have even been a Roman official, as Luke calls him, most excellent Theophilus. That title was a way of addressing someone of, uh, of some rank and, and status. Theophilus might have been a believer, or maybe he was close to being a believer, but, but either way, perhaps he was battling some, some doubt, some uncertainty, and, and Luke's goal was to research and compile a factual, orderly account of Christ and the gospel to help Theophilus have confidence in the things that he'd already been taught. Now, what's interesting is that for many years, Luke was criticized by modern scholars as being an inaccurate historian. But over the last 50 years or so, Luke has been vindicated vehemently and is widely recognized now, not not just by Christian scholars, but by by secular ones as well. Luke's been recognized uh, to be not just a good historian, but an excellent and meticulous one who wrote very precisely and accurately about history and politics and, and medicine and even nautical things like the sailing of ships. This guy was brilliant. He did his work well. Now, you may say, well, so what? Who cares about history? I hate history. <laughs> Never liked it in school. Got bad grades in it. History seems boring and irrelevant. But if you're a Christian, you ought to be very concerned about history. Because getting the history right, getting it accurate, is absolutely critical. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Christianity is tied to historical events more than any other religion. Christianity is grounded in history. If you are a Buddhist or if you're a Hindu, your faith doesn't hinge on historical realities as Christianity does. Uh, Christianity is, is not just about abstract, nebulous concepts and theories and ideas that are detached from history. And, and instead, Christianity is actually tied up in history, so, so bound to actual events that happen in actual places that it loses its meaning apart from history. And if the history in this book is wrong, then Christianity is wrong. Luke's historical account matters because Acts isn't just for Theophilus and for those who maybe just have a curiosity about history, history nerds. Uh, the book of Acts, like all of Scripture, is, is meant for us, it's meant for you. Uh, Acts was inspired by God and written by Luke so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Uh, therefore, on the other side of our study of Acts, you should have more certainty, more confidence, and more faith. That's what I'm praying for. Now, we'll we'll discover more about the overall purpose, point, and direction of Acts as we begin to consider Luke's introduction. That's what these first five verses of Acts are. They're an introduction. And I wonder if you're one of those people who, when you're reading a new book, you just kind of tend to skip over the introduction. Is that you? Because you just want to get to the kind of the meat and potatoes of the story. But if you skip the introduction of Acts, you're really going to miss a lot. Just in his introduction alone, 
we find four very encouraging words from Luke that not only set the tone for his book, but should set the tone for, for the trajectory of your entire life. Uh, this is an introduction that you don't want to miss. And the first thing that Luke tells us in this introduction is that Jesus' work continues. Jesus' work continues. Look with me at the first couple of verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, notice right away, first of all, Luke mentions his first book. In in the first book, O Theophilus, now again, that's the, the gospel of Luke, which gives a summary of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. And now Luke is moving on to volume two, to the, to the sequel. And, and there's a lot of important things packed into these first two verses, but perhaps the most significant thing in them is just one little word. It's the word began. The word began. You may want to underline that. You may want to highlight that in your Bible. Luke says in the, in the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. What's the implication there? The implication is that Jesus is not done doing and teaching. Uh, There's more. His work has just begun. Now, this of course is not meant to minimize aspects of Jesus' work that are indeed done, like the atonement. Uh, Remember, as Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished which means his work in being a sacrificial blood atonement for the sins of his people was complete. There would be no need to do that again. As the author of Hebrews says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's finished. That work is done. But guess what? There's more. There's more work to do. When Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, he wasn't just sitting down in retirement. You know, whew, well, I, I did all that, and that was hard work, and I'm just going to sit down and relax for a couple thousand years. No. Jesus isn't sitting in a lazy boy, but on a throne. Uh, he, he's done paying the price for sins, but his work as the reigning king is just getting going. There's more work, more acts for Jesus to do. You know, there, there's been some debate over the years, what should we call this book? What, what should the title of this book be? You know, back, back when, when, when the, the, uh, you know, Luke and the, and the apostles were writing their, their New Testament works, they, they weren't like putting titles on them. It wasn't like Luke was sitting down like, Acts. Oh, that's a good title. And then, you know, he starts writing. That, that's not how it worked. The, the, the idea for, for titles of these books came a little bit later. I think probably around the second century, folks began calling it the, the Acts of the Apostles. Because, you know, the apostles were running around and they were acting. They were doing stuff. Uh, a little later on, people were like, no, I think a better title is Acts of the Holy Spirit. That, that would be a, a better title. And the Holy Spirit is a prominent, prominent figure uh, in, in the book of Acts. Uh, and I think that gets closer to the, to the market as a good title, but I think even better would be uh, Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus Christ because, because here, even in the very first couple of verses, Luke is kind of tipping his hand and saying, this is where we're going here. It, this is all about Jesus' continuing work. His continuing work. 
more acts for him to do. If, if the Gospel of Luke is the historical account of what Jesus taught and did on earth, Acts will be the historical account of what Jesus teaches and does from heaven as he begins to make reality things that have been foretold long ago. And this is what elevates Acts above some dry, boring, dusty history textbook. Because Acts isn't just history, it is, as Dennis Johnson says, prophetically interpreted history. Uh, It's the bridge between God's word of promise to Israel in the Old Testament and his word of fulfillment to Israel and the nations in Jesus. Acts is prophetically interpreted history. You could also say that Acts is theological history. It's theological history. Uh, Through the history recorded in Acts, we're going to see many, many theological doctrines and truths uh, that, that are foundational for our faith including God's providence and history, uh, his sovereignty and salvation, his building of the church, the spiritual unity of Jews and Gentiles, Jesus' unity with his church, Jesus' kingship over the nations, the deity of the Holy Spirit, salvation through faith and repentance, the early formation of church polity and church membership, elders and deacons and lessons on evangelism and missions, eschatology, and much, much more. So if you like history, yeah, there's a lot of it in Acts. If you like theology, yeah, there's a lot of it in Acts. It isn't some dry, boring history textbook. It is living and active and powerful and life-changing as you see history intersecting with and invaded by God's overarching purposes through Jesus Christ. It is the very word of God. And in his introduction, Luke is telling Theophilus and us, strap on your seatbelts, buckle down, If you thought what I wrote previously was something, hold on tight, Jesus' work has only just begun. Because, and this leads to the second major thing we see in this introduction, Jesus' life continues. Jesus' life continues. If Christianity hinges on whether or not its historical accounts are true, the most significant of those historical realities is the empty tomb. This is yet another thing that separates Christianity from other religious worldviews. The fact that Buddha is dead and long decomposed has zero impact on Buddhism. The fact that Muhammad is still in his tomb in Saudi Arabia, visited by millions of people every year, that has no bearing on Islam. We don't even know who exactly was responsible for Hinduism. Whoever they are, they're long dead and gone and nobody cares. Hinduism is Hinduism without these ancient people. And there are some today who would say, you know what, the same is true about Jesus. That Jesus actually is dead, and that's okay. Really doesn't matter. You can still be a Christian. You can still hold to the teachings of Christ, regardless of whether or not he has risen from the grave. And yet again, while with those other beliefs, the resurrection of their founder is not necessary, folks, for Christianity, everything hinges on the empty tomb. Everything does. That's the ball game right there. Uh, if Jesus is still dead, Luke can't say what he just said in his introduction, that, that he's writing about what Jesus began to do and teach, implying that he is continuing to do and teach because if Jesus is still dead, he can't do and teach anything. Uh, not to mention the fact that everything Jesus did do would be useless and in vain. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain 
And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, Jesus died not just to be a warm, sentimental example of love, as some people say. Jesus died to be a sin offering, a blood sacrifice, a sinless sacrificial substitute. Because he was perfect and sinless, he was able to die and pay the price for other people's sins and not his own. But if Jesus is still in the grave, if his body has decomposed and gone back into the dust, that means that Jesus was not a perfect substitutionary sacrifice, but that he was a sinner just like you, and that he was subject to the curse of death just like you and me. And therefore, folks, if Jesus is not raised, the dumbest and most idiotic thing you can do is be a Christian. If Jesus is not raised, find another religion or be an atheist because you're wasting your time. Leave this room right now. If Jesus is not raised, because if there is no resurrection, everything about Christianity falls apart. Everything does. Not just the atonement, but the whole reason for the existence of the church the, the, the whole promise of a, of a ruling and reigning Messiah who ushers in a new age of peace and life and renewal and, and so many other things fall apart if Jesus is not raised. And so Luke in, in, in the book of Acts is gonna spend a lot of time emphasizing not just Jesus, but the risen Jesus. Uh, he ended his first volume focused on the resurrection and he launches the book of Acts, his second volume, With the resurrection, he's right back on it. He won't stop talking about it. Verse three, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days. And we see some of those appearances recorded in Luke's gospel. Some of them we see in the other three gospels in Matthew, Mark, and John. The apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians mentions Jesus appearing to 500 brothers at one time. Uh, Jesus invited people to touch him. Jesus invited people to, to eat with him, to, to, to touch his wounds. He, he wasn't a, a ghost or a, a hallucination. Uh, he, he wasn't some half-dead guy who somehow survived the crucifixion and crawled out of the tomb. When I say touch his wounds, I mean the, I mean the, the, the nail prints and the, and the spear thrust in his side. Of course, he was fully healed, but those marks were still there. And he, wanted, he, and he invited Thomas to handle them to show that he was a real physical being. And that was really Jesus. Jesus. Jesus was really dead. And he was really raised. And, and, and he proved it so much that his disciples were willing to suffer and die for this. But it wasn't just the resurrection, but what the resurrection meant for the disciples. What I mean is, is that if someone dies and comes back, well, that's wonderful, but it doesn't necessarily mean you die for them. But these disciples understood that Jesus' death and resurrection was not just for his own sake, but was for theirs. As Jesus said during the Last Supper, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. This all is for you. The resurrection demonstrated not just the validity of Jesus, but the validity of his sacrifice and and what it meant for them uh, because now they, they, they knew that their own death wasn't the end of the story and that they too would be raised. 
the reality of Jesus' resurrection changes and transforms their lives and, and, and how they view everything. And it should shape how you see the world more than anything else. Usually, how we see the world is more influenced and shaped by other things, not the resurrection. How, how, much, how much does the resurrection influence how you see the world on a day-to-day or hour-to-hour basis? Um, usually, how we see the world is more influenced and shaped by just whether or not we feel like our day is going well, or how much money we have, or the particular trials we're enduring, or, or whether or not we're, we're getting the things that we want. And I'm not saying none of those things are important. I'm saying that above all else, the resurrection should be the defining thing in our lives, above and beyond anything else in our lives. Because if the resurrection is true, then that changes everything. But there is a third encouraging word in Luke's introduction, and that is that Jesus' kingdom has come. Jesus' kingdom has come. Verse 3 says, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a major theme in Acts. This book starts off talking about the kingdom. The last sentence in the book of Acts talks about the kingdom and, and, and mentions of the kingdom happen in between throughout the book. Now, the kingdom of God can be defined in different ways, but one helpful definition is from Brian Vickers, who writes that the kingdom of God refers to the Lord's rule and reign. This kingdom is not localized with borders or made up of particular people connected politically, culturally, or ethnically, but is established in the lives of men and women through the power of the gospel. I think that's a good definition. What's more, the Bible speaks of the kingdom as something that is already here. Uh, that, that was a, a major thrust of Jesus' preaching during his, his three-year ministry. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is, is among you, he says. And yet, at the same time, it's yes, it's already here, but, but, but in another way, it's not yet here. The kingdom is present and active and growing, and yet the full visible manifestation of Christ's rule is yet to be seen. It's here, but there's more to come. And the book of Acts is about the triumphant advancement of that kingdom. And so, while this book is prophetic and theological history, Acts also shows us something else very important about history, and that is that we, as God's people, are on the right side of history. It's common to hear today from people who don't love God, who who stand against everything that God says in in His Word, Uh, It's common for such people to say that you Christians, you Christians, you backwards people, you're on the wrong side of history. And brothers and sisters, we hear that so much from the culture that it is tempting to believe that. really is. But this charge against Christians actually is nothing new. Uh, The early church was accused of this from the very beginning, and we're going to see it in the book of Acts. We're going to see unbelieving Jews accusing Christians of of false teaching. We're going to see pagans throwing Paul in prison on the charge of advocating customs that aren't lawful. We'll see Christians accused of tanking the local economy of the city of Ephesus. Uh, We'll see Christians viewed by many just to be a general nuisance in the culture. And sometimes that anti-Christian sentiment gets hostile and even deadly. And the constant message of Acts we're going to see is that despite all of the opposition, Christians nevertheless are on the right side of history. The work Jesus has begun goes on. The church continues to grow, continues to advance, continues to be blessed by God, continues to see new converts and spreads throughout the entire Roman world. 
In fact, if you look down to verse 8, we're given a preview of this. Jesus tells his disciples that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem. That's locally, right there where they were at that time. And then regionally into Judea. And then into Samaria, crossing cultural and racial barriers. And then pressing deeper into the Gentile world, going even to the ends of the earth. And as Acts unfolds, you will see repeated language that signifies the triumphal spread of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. Let me give you a few examples. Um, Acts 6-7 is one example where Luke writes, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. Here's another one. Acts 12-24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Or Acts 19-20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You're going to see that kind of language over and over again throughout the book of Acts. And Luke's point is that despite persecution, opposition, controversy, hostile authorities, demonic opposition, false teachers, false religions, and even martyrdom, Despite all of those things, Jesus is working and Jesus is causing his church to grow and thrive and the gospel of the kingdom is advancing and triumphing not only in spite of all of the obstacles and oppositions it faces, but sometimes even because of it. As the hearts of people everywhere are being conquered by King Jesus and they are laying down their weapons of rebellion and insurrection and with great joy bending the knee to him, becoming his loyal disciples and subjects. It, it can't be stopped. The, the movement can't be stopped. Uh, and In fact, in the, in the very last uh, chapter of Acts, uh, and in verse 31, it talks about Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God with all boldness and without hindrance, unhindered. Uh, that's the last word in the book of Acts. It moves forward. It's unstoppable. Luke ends his first volume hinting at this as he records Jesus' final instructions to his disciples after his resurrection. He says in Luke 24... Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then he says, you are witnesses of these things. And so now in his second volume, Luke's going to show us the beginnings of that kingdom expansion starting in Jerusalem. And so while we'll read about a lot of opposition and a lot of persecution and a lot of suffering on the part of believers, nevertheless, Acts is an extremely optimistic book. That's why I'm excited to preach it. I think many of you need some optimism right now after 2020, uh, after global pandemics and racial unrest and increased hostility to Christianity. Acts is a very optimistic book because Jesus is not just on the right side of history, Jesus is at the center of all history. History is his story, it's about him and serves his purpose and is inevitably leading towards an end time manifestation of his reign and supreme kingship. And this global takeover begins in Jerusalem through a small, tiny band of Jewish disciples led by a man named Peter. And if you know anything about these disciples and Peter, that should scare you to death. 
This is the same Peter whom Luke had already written about in his first volume that was so terrified of being identified with Jesus that he lied. He denied any association with him. These are the same disciples that on the eve of Jesus' greatest suffering ever, they were arguing among themselves about who among them was the most awesome. Uh, These were people who time and again seemed dim-witted and hard-headed, battling unbelief. They deserted Jesus when he was arrested. You mean these disciples are supposed to be the world's first heralds of the risen king? (laughs) It is through those guys? (laughs) It is through them that the gospel will expand to the ends of the earth? How in the world does that happen? Well, the answer to that is my fourth and final point about Luke's encouraging introduction. After telling us that Jesus' work continues and that Jesus' life goes on and that Jesus' kingdom is here, finally we're told that Jesus' spirit will come. Jesus' spirit will come. Luke ends his first first book by recording a wonderful promise from Jesus Uh, The disciples will not be expected to move forward in the mission in their own strength. And so Jesus says in Luke 24, 29, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus is referring to the Holy Spirit, uh, whom is mentioned at the very beginning of Luke's gospel and the preaching of John the Baptist, who was like a herald for the coming king and and preparing the people for Messiah's coming. And John the Baptist says in Luke 3.16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now that word baptize means to completely immerse. Jesus is coming to completely immerse and saturate the believer with the Holy Spirit. Now, the promise of the Spirit did not begin with John the Baptist preaching. It actually reaches back to the Old Testament, where where a mighty move of the Spirit of God was tightly connected with the coming of the Messianic kingdom. And so the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 44, I will pour water, this is God speaking, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 32, 15 speaks of the spirit being poured out from on high. In Ezekiel 36, the Holy Spirit is associated with spiritual cleansing and forgiveness of sins and heart transformation. Uh, God says there that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here in Ezekiel 36, the spirit is seen as the agent of regeneration Uh, The sinner in his natural condition hates God, loves sin. The Spirit comes and transforms the sinner. Indeed, when Jesus in John 3 teaches about the necessity of being born again to see the kingdom of God, uh, Jesus alludes to that very text, Ezekiel uh, 36. Now, as critical as the Spirit's regenerative work is, the main focus of Luke at the end of his gospel and in the beginning of Acts is not the regenerative work of the Spirit, but rather the Spirit's supply of power, enabling his people to serve God and advance his kingdom, his kingdom spreading mission into the world. In the Old Testament, 
We see the Spirit coming upon a few select people in a special way to equip and empower them for service. But the Old Testament foresees a future time, the era of Messiah, where the Spirit's empowering activity would not uh, be restricted to just a handful of people in Israel, but to God's people everywhere. And so God says in Joel 2.28, and it shall come to pass that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And so this is the background we need to have in mind when Going back to Acts 1, we are told in verse 4 that while staying with them, he, Jesus, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then we're going to see in the next chapter, in chapter 2, uh, we're going to see that spirit baptism uh, happens where not just the those those disciples, but three thousand new believers receive the Spirit, and Peter is going to say that the gift of the Holy Spirit is available to all who repent and believe, all whom God calls to Himself. And if you look at the lives of the disciples before the gift of the Spirit, and you look at the lives of the disciples after the gift of the Spirit, folks, it's like night and day. It's like who are these people? The, the people that I was reading about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are different people. They have a new zeal they, they never had before, a new boldness and courage they never had before, a new understanding into the scriptures that they never had before. Uh, these, these formerly fearful and cowardly men are now standing eyeball to eyeball with their persecutors and saying, we are not going to obey you, we're going to obey God and we're going to continue to preach the gospel. Uh, their lives and their ministries are radically transformed. In and of themselves, the disciples are weak and fickle and afraid and unreliable and failures. But when the Spirit works through them, empires are turned upside down. Because the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal power that you have to try to tap into and manipulate, and maybe sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't, kind of like the Force in Star Wars. Uh, The Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is a he. And so to be baptized or immersed in the Spirit is to be immersed in God himself. Uh, The Bible calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ because the Holy Spirit mediates the presence of Christ to his people. Uh, This is exactly how Jesus can fulfill his promise to us when he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, To have the Spirit indwell you is to have Christ himself indwell you. And if Christ is present with you, if he's walking right beside you, whom shall you fear? (laughs) And and what is not possible when he's by your side? Remember, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said, does the work, and he does it through his people, by his spirit, and success is guaranteed because nothing is too hard for the Lord. I hope you see how how skipping the introduction to this book would have been a very bad idea. It really drops some pretty significant realities on us that sets us up to understand the rest of the book. Uh, We're not part of some dead, irrelevant religion. And Jesus' work didn't just finish 2,000 years ago. He's not taking a nap in his easy chair in heaven. He's actively working. In fact, he's building a kingdom. And Acts reminds us that it is triumphantly advancing. 
right? We're, we're, we're not meant to kind of sit on the edge of our seat and wonder, oh my, will the plan of God actually come to pass? I don't know. Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Do you know that the kingdom will advance regardless of who wins the election on Tuesday? So stop panicking and relax and be of good cheer and read the book of Acts to remind yourself of where the world is headed, where this thing is all going. But here's the other thing. If Jesus' work is continuing and if he is advancing his kingdom, and if you are part of his kingdom people, then brothers and sisters, what is the most important thing you can be doing in your life right now? What should be your main goal? Your chief obsession? Your burning passion? What should it be? To get a promotion at work? To get married? To graduate from college? To retire with a lot of money in your IRA so you can play golf for 20 years and then die? Is that the end goal? To maximize your comfort right now in a world that is passing away? My prayer is that over the next weeks and months, the book of Acts will light a fire under Harbin's church, starting with this old pathetic preacher right here. I'm not exempt. Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that there aren't other lesser pursuits and goals that are good and legitimate. But the book of Acts is going to remind us that everything we do must be subservient to the mission that God has called all of his disciples to, including you and me. And that mission is to proclaim to all nations the sufferings and resurrection of the Christ and repentance for the forgiveness of sins, for the joy of the nations, and for the glory of Jesus. So are you in? Are you in? Are, are, are you are you? on mission. Will you be? You may say, well, I'm not a pastor. (laughs) You don't have to be. Most people aren't. Well, I'm not gifted like like, like Brother Peter sitting over here uh, who, who goes out and preaches on the street corners every week. You don't have to do that. I would dare say most Christians aren't called to that specific kind of ministry. You don't have to do that. All you have to do is open your mouth and talk about King Jesus and the gospel in whatever kinds of context that God puts you in. It's not complicated. It's not rocket science. Maybe, maybe you think of specifically people who may be watching here, uh, watching on the live stream. Uh, uh, maybe you're sick. Maybe you're, maybe you're homebound. Uh, uh, maybe you aren't around unbelievers that much at all. Well, Do you pray for the lost? Uh, Do you pray for others uh, who you know are talking with unbelievers? Perhaps, perhaps from your home, you can represent Jesus on, on social media. Boy, we need people representing Jesus better on social media. Or, or send cards or gospel tracts to people telling them about Christ. Maybe there are unbelievers in your own household that God has called you to be a witness to. There are ways that all of us can get involved in the mission of God one way or another, and I pray that Acts will help us all to do that together. And maybe you're saying, well, I'm just afraid. I'm weak. I don't speak well. I feel like a failure. Brother, sister, 
you're in good company. Just look around you. This room is full of losers. (laughs) The chief among them standing right here in front of you. Uh, Consider those disciples in Acts. Ordinary men. uh, Some uneducated. Some fishermen. Some perhaps day laborers. Fools and failures they were. If you know your Bibles, you know this. And that is precisely why the promise of Jesus, the promise of the Father is so encouraging. The promise of the Spirit You're not doing this alone. Jesus Christ is with you through his spirit and he will give you everything you need to fulfill his purpose for you. And I'm gonna pray that the book of Acts will open your eyes to what ordinary men and women can do when the spirit is doing it through them. Jesus is with you always, even to the end of the age. And of course, all of these things are predicated on the most important thing of all, Namely, that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. You can know that he's working. You can know that the kingdom will advance and you can know that you have the promise of the spirit because he's alive. And if you're here this morning as an unbeliever, that is the most important truth to walk away with this morning. He's alive. He's alive. His resurrection was the seismic event That shook the universe. So friend, why would you listen to Buddha or Muhammad or a bunch of other old dead guys who are now nothing but dust? Why follow them? All they got in the end was the grave. So what do they they know? But Luke reminds us that Jesus is alive and well and he said that everyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm going to listen to and anchor my hope in the one who actually beat death. He obviously knows of what he speaks, so I will cast my lot with him. Will you? Will you repent of your sins? Will you receive him by faith? Will you trust in his sacrificial death on the cross for your sins? Will you lay down your arms and stop foolishly going your own way and finally acknowledge what you know is true? that Jesus is Lord. If you do those things and turn to him, then welcome to the right side of history. Now get on mission with the rest of us to be continued next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the book of Acts. Thank you that you inspired Luke to write such a a powerful and impactful introduction. And I pray that we would walk away here this morning taking the things that we have learned to heart. That Jesus is still working. The work has only just begun. There are more exciting things that he's doing. And, and And he's doing it because he is still alive. And because he's alive and well, we can have hope, and because he's alive and well, he is advancing a kingdom, a kingdom that will inevitably be global. And you have invited sinners like us to be a part of it. And not only that, not only does it be a part of it, but to to be your instruments in the advancement of your message of the kingdom. And how, how wonderful and gracious of you that, that the message 
the, 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 the successful delivery of the message ultimately does not hinge on how awesome we are, but on the power of the Spirit working through us as Jesus is with us always, even now and to the end of the age. Help us to take this word seriously and be on mission. In Jesus' name, amen.